everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I'm here with Terry Fakes. We are back in person. We are covering a very unique book uh, for reasons we'll get into quickly here on our book overviews. Um, you know, we were taking stock this week of how many of these we've done. And sometimes, uh, I hate to admit this, but sometimes we throw out a book that we have already done. And uh, with Job especially, there are books that need to be redone. But we're really getting close. I think we have just over 40 of these books done. And so we're in the home stretch. And we've got some of the big ones left. Gospel of John, Book of Revelation. Right. We've we've got some big ones coming up. But we're doing Ecclesiastes today. And if you've listened to our podcast for very long, at some point in the past, we went over our favorite and least favorite books of the Bible. Right. And this one is unique in the fact that it is my least favorite book in the Bible. And it is my most favorite. So, anyway, maybe we should say a word on that before we get going. I say least favorite, not as in I don't think it's scripture. I'm not pulling a Martin Luther on James here saying that it needs to be taken out of the Bible. I just happen to not like it, of all the 66 books, the most. You know, well, you're not alone because some of the rabbis in the Talmud, you see an argument about whether or not Ecclesiastes is worthy of being in the scriptures. It is part of the Jewish canon. There's, mm-hmm. there's no doubt about it being scriptural, about it being inspired. But you're not alone in trying to figure out how does this fit. You know, part of uh, my liking it is maybe a little bit of a melancholy nature, and but it jives with my observations about life. And that is very Hobbesian. Life is nasty, brutal, and short. You know, as a historian, you realize whoever wrote Ecclesiastes understood humanity and human life. Mm -hmm. And yet, there are glimmers of light in the book. So I suppose I love it for its honesty and its grittiness. Right. Yeah, and I think that is is part of the likable uh, aspect of the book. Of course, we think that the Holy Spirit has never wasted any inspiration. And there's a lot to learn from this book. I I think where I went wrong with Ecclesiastes was in grad school. So in seminary, the way that they were teaching Ecclesiastes was very much, it is a meaningless book. Mm -hmm. And it is a reminder of the meaninglessness of life. And we'll get to this. I I think part of that is true. But where, where we went wrong was... And that's all it means. Right. So in, to kind of get into the conversation about Ecclesiastes, you have to start talking about wisdom literature. Right. So wisdom literature is a little bit of a loose term, but usually in the Bible it means Psalms and Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Sometimes people don't include Psalms in that. Sometimes people will include sections of other books in that. But that's kind of your wisdom literature section of your Bible. So if you read Proverbs, then you have a very black and white picture of the world. Good people get rewarded. Bad people get punished. If you do the right thing, good things will come if you wait long enough. If you do the bad thing, bad things will come if you wait long enough. It's a very two-valued, simplistic world. Psalms are a little bit more complicated. You have people suffering, crying out, lamenting. More texture. And then you get to the book of Job. Job is the ultimate why do bad things happen to good people. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, in some ways, provides some context for the book of Proverbs uh, by saying, actually, you can be really good and still suffer. 
Then, as this framework goes, you get to the book of Ecclesiastes, which actually rejects the worldview of Proverbs. And so you have a meaningless world. The reason, the reason I started really not like Ecclesiastes is because I do not think that's a good way to view wisdom literature. But I wasn't quite sure what to do with Ecclesiastes. That, that was very compelling in the way that that was argued, that it, that it really is a book about meaninglessness. It is an opposition to the style of life presented in the book of Proverbs. And so it wasn't until I figured out what to do with Ecclesiastes textually and canonically that I started to really appreciate Ecclesiastes. And uh, we'll, we'll have some time to flesh out what to do with this book as we actually discuss the book. But I think part of the problem is that's not a very good way to look at wisdom literature. That scheme that I've just outlined is not, not really very accurate to the way wisdom literature works. What do you think? Uh, I agree with that. One thing I would add is putting this whole biblical wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, etc., in the context of other ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. In other words, wisdom literature is a genre that is broader than the biblical books. Mm-hmm. There are Egyptian wisdom books. There are Babylonian wisdom books. The whole ancient Near East, that part of the world, has a corpus of literature, if you will, that falls into a wisdom category. I want to characterize it this way. This is a little simplistic, but I think this will be very useful for our listeners. Think about wisdom literature struggling with the question of how to make sense of the big questions, the meaning of life, and how to live it well. Mm -hmm. There, Other literature wants to talk about adventures and winning battles and yeah there are many many things you can write on but wisdom literature seems to me to focus by and large on what is the meaning of life and how does one live it well Mm -hmm. and that includes everything from very upbeat wisdom literature to very introspective and really almost pessimistic Mm -hmm. wisdom literature so i would say it's wisdom literature largely because it's trying to answer the question what is the point of life and how does one live it Right. I, th- I think that's exactly right on what wisdom literature is trying to do. And reading it in the context of other wisdom literatures of the time, whether it's Babylonian or Egyptian, sheds some light on what what these genres are trying to accomplish. So you have Proverbs, for example. Proverbs are not intending to be a discursive statement of theology. Right. Instead, what it's trying to do is juxtapose two things to help the reader think through an issue with some guide rails put up, for example, or describe a situation from different viewpoints so that the, the truth comes from surveying several different options. Um, I, I think canonically, reading this in the context of the whole Bible, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are two poles, but they're not two opposing poles. They are looking from two different directions. So on the one hand, I think it's really compelling to read Proverbs as what it is like to live in the ideal kingdom, the kingdom of God, with the ideal king. You see all kinds of kingly language in Proverbs. It's introduced as a manual for future kings. Of course, we know that the one true king is Jesus Christ. And if he is king in, in his kingdom, the world looks a lot like Proverbs. Right. On the flip side, Ecclesiastes is what it looks like without a king. Right. 
So this is what the world actually looks like outside of the reign of Christ. It is this pessimistic world. And so I think the fundamental shift for me was in realizing that Ecclesiastes is not a godless book, but it is a description of what a godless universe looks like. That's a really astute observation. Uh, One way I've described it, again, not 100% accurate, but a good way to think about it is we live in the kingdom of God. And one way of saying that is we live on this side of the cross. Mm -hmm. And I think Ecclesiastes is a very frank and honest look at what life looks like on the other side of the cross, Mm -hmm. where there is no king. Uh, the, oh, the king has not yet arrived. Right. The kingdom has not yet arrived. And that may be a helpful way to look at it. I think that's very astute, Cole. So this will become more clear. These, this kind of framework will become more clear when we, as we dive into the book. Let's talk a little bit about background. This is kind of an interesting area for Ecclesiastes. Uh, you get a lot of this in the New Testament. Who wrote this book? It, does it matter who wrote this book? You don't get this as much in the, in the Old Testament. Sometimes you just plain don't know. Right. And a lot of times you have editors. We've talked about this before in First and Second Kings and First and Second Samuel. You have primary authors, and then you have some period of editing that goes on to compile the work into its final form. Right. But outside of that, we don't have the whodunit that we do in the New Testament with, with kind of secular scholarship saying, well, actually, it says Paul, but it's not Paul. Or this says right. Peter on it, but it's not Peter. That phenomenon happens maybe most acutely in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Right. The tradition has it, long-standing tradition amongst the Jews, is that Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Mm -hmm. Even though he is not named, he calls himself the preacher or the teacher, the way it's translated, uh, the proclaimer, the convener. The Hebrew word can mean a lot of things, but basically one who is proclaiming something. And it says, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And because it's wisdom literature, it has traditionally been ascribed to Solomon. So that would be about 900 B.C. Mm -hmm. The challenges in recent times, as all challenges in recent times, are not so much historical. There's no evidence that it wasn't Solomon. Right. It's really, there's several areas, but I would boil it down to this. The biggest one is linguistic. Mm -hmm. And that is looking at the Hebrew of this book. The fact that there are some Persian words in it, the fact that there are Aramaisms, you know, Aramaic, which is a very closely related language to Hebrew. Well, in Solomon's time, Hebrew was pretty pure. Let's move forward from 900 BC to say 200 BC, after the exile to Babylon and coming back. Now Hebrew is not so pure. You get some Persian words translated into it. You get Aramaic. Jesus probably spoke Aramaic. Right. Traditional Hebrew had been supplanted over those several hundred years. So I want you to get a sense that there's a legitimate question here, but the question is not historical or archaeological. The evidence is simply, gee, this language doesn't look like what Solomon would have said. Right. And there are a number of explanations for that. So the opinion that Solomon didn't write it isn't based on what you and I would call hard evidence. But it's a, it's a fair critique. Right. Yeah, I think the interesting thing is it, it, it does say that it's written by someone. Mm-hmm. The question is, who is the someone? Right. And this is where it's a little bit different than the New Testament is nobody is disputing that it's written by the preacher is how the ESV translates it. So the Hebrew word here is koheleth. And sometimes you'll actually see this word. It starts with a Q, koheleth. Sometimes you'll see that actually as the referent to this book. Instead of calling it Ecclesiastes, which is a Latin name, 
you see it called Koheleth, which right. is the first part of this first sentence. The words of Koheleth, which is either the preacher or I, I kind of like the collector yeah. as a uh, name because it, it gives you a sense of what's actually happening in this book. So the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. Okay, that narrows it down. So sons of David that were kings of Jerusalem, you only got one. So you have some imitators, but you only have one true king. One possibility, again, it's not just Solomon wrote it or it was written 700 years later right. and made up. Another possibility is this does read like that someone is writing down the words of Solomon, the king of yeah. Jerusalem, and collecting this information. So I always point that out to say there are a number of theories, mm -hmm. none of which can be proved. And to my mind, I'm going to give you an opinion now. I don't see compelling evidence to override the traditional understanding of the Jewish rabbis throughout the centuries that Solomon wrote the book. Yep. So that's going to be my, where I come from, is that Solomon wrote the book. I acknowledge, though, that there are fair critiques that should be engaged. Right. No, I think Solomon wrote it. I think that the, com the, the complexity of a process of writing, sometimes we undersell in the ancient world. Mm -hmm. If they didn't have access to collecting pieces of wisdom and putting them together in a book. I think that's what happened in the book of Proverbs, for example. It says in 1 Kings, Solomon wrote thousands of Proverbs. It also says in the book of Proverbs that the men of Hezekiah, after that, put together the Proverbs, the Proverbs of right. Solomon. It also says that, you know, in, in the end, in chapter 30, these are the words of Agur, son of Jekai. Okay, that's probably something that Solomon collected. This is maybe right. one of his favorite poems. You know, so it, I think we kind of sell these ancient authors short sometimes. But the traditional understanding is that Solomon wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, right. which we haven't done yet, but that has another interesting authorial debate because we call it Song of Solomon when the name of it is Song of Songs, which right. means the songest of songs. Right. So we'll get to that when we get to Song of Solomon. So we kick off the book, and there's another problem with Ecclesiastes right out of the gate. Typically at this point in the podcast, we give an outline of the book that we're about to do. <laughs> and Ecclesiastes is about as unoutlinable as you have any book true. in the Bible. You can throw away your Roman numeral one and your capital A, and you're not going to outline this book, basically. I, I think, uh, see what you think about this, but I want to put two bookends on this. So in chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, and we'll talk about that in a minute, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now I want to go all the way to almost the end. Chapter 12, verse 8, here's the same phrase. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. It seems to me he starts with a thesis, because I would argue vanity of vanities, we'll talk about exactly what that means in a minute, is the thesis statement. That is a claim he's making. And now he's going to take 12 chapters to tell you, listen, I'm going to tell you why I think it's all vain. Mm -hmm. Because I did this, and I did that, and I did this. And all these things come back to, at chapter 12, verse 8, you see, vanity of vanities. Mm -hmm. None of this has any ultimate meaning. Right. What do you think? Is that a reasonable way to sketch this out? Yeah, I think textually that's definitely a good organizing principle. But it's, it's hard to come up with any really defined categories of what's going on. There's a little bit of narrative structure here. The first two chapters, you have Solomon saying, here are some different lifestyles and different ways of exploring the world. 
they all lead to vanity. Mm-hmm. Um, chapters three through five is a more concentrated argument about the sovereignty of God in the vain world. Um, the, the third part, I would say, um, is looking towards God, but seeing his attributes in the things of the earth. So that's mm-hmm. a little bit different emphasis. You're right. going to get some passages that kind of display God working behind the scenes in the world. And then at the end, um, you have a summary. In the last chapter, you have a summary of what he thinks he's established so far in the book. Right. Outside of that, that's a pretty vague outlining. Outside of that, it's really very difficult to outline. It's more an exploration uh, than it is uh, an exposition. Mm-hmm. I mean, you read the letters of Paul, he has several points he wants to make for very practical purposes to address a problem, to teach you some theology. Right. I think Kohelet wants to say, I think observing the world that it's ultimately meaningless. Now come with me on a journey and I'll tell you why, how I got to this conclusion. Yes. One of the commentators, this is Eaton in the Tyndall series, says, what is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? It is an essay in apologetics. It Mm. defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing to the grimness of the alternative. And I think that's a really great way to think about this book. It is like an essay. It's not Mm -hmm. like your school essay. This is like an essay in Harper's or The New Yorker Uh where you're exploring a topic from a lot of different angles. And the topic is vanity, the vanity of life Mm -hmm. and the meaninglessness of the vain life. So I I think if you think in less in terms of a outline in a a chronology from beginning to end Uh and more a focal point that everything else is rotating around, that's a a good way to read Ecclesiastes. Yes. So I'll tell you the breakthrough that kind of happened for me in Ecclesiastes. It was reading Doug Wilson's book, which is a commentary on Ecclesiastes, called Joy at the End of the Tether. So I read this book in maybe 2004. 15 or 2016 mm-hmm. and it is uh, kind of a summation of his sermons on Ecclesiastes and that book helped me finally understand what this book is really trying to do so how do you relate vanity to the worldview that we think Solomon must have had by what we know about Solomon to the rest of the canon it's not a carve out it is mm-hmm. a photo negative in certain ways, where you're saying this is the vanity of life as it is, mm-hmm. without you know, without uh, the New Testament kingdom of God view that we talked about earlier, and beyond that, it is the things of the earth, the things under the sun, which is kind of a repetitive phrase in Ecclesiastes. The things under the sun, in and of themselves, are vanity. In and of themselves, they are meaningless. But it takes a person who has a relationship with God to be able to enjoy meaningless things because of the one who stands behind them. So so another chorus that you see over and over and over again in this book is, God has decreed this, or this is the end of the matter. Um, God has said, eat, drink, and be merry. Right. So there's a difference between eat, drink, and be merry, that's all there is. That's a very nihilistic view of the world. And because God is God, you can eat, drink, and be merry and not have to get all of your meaning from eating, drinking, and being merry. So there's an enjoyment of life at the end of the tether. 
So the joy at the end of the tether title is is kind of encompassing his argument in the book, which is once you know your tethering, once you know what you're tied down to, what you know the source of everything, then you are free to really enjoy what is otherwise meaningless. So if you're looking for your value or if you're looking for meaning in a meaningless world, you're always going to be disappointed. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have to find your meaning from the world, you can see it as God's good creation that in and of itself is meaningless, then you have joy at the end of the tether. I think that's a pretty good argument for what's going on in this book. I agree with that. The, the idea of being anchored, because what's, I want to put this in a bigger, I want, I, this, Ecclesiastes is every man in every time. And I want to talk about the existentialists before we get done with this a little bit, because I think that's wisdom literature in a peculiar way. But basically what's, what is most surprising about Ecclesiastes, you start with the idea that everything is meaningless and you go through chasing happiness with fame, with fortune, with building, with wine, with women, with song, with whatever you can find of these temporal things. And you end with, well, it's all meaningless. You would expect this person to be an atheist mm -hmm. and say, there's absolutely no meaning. And yet, nowhere in this does he ever make the turn that says, life is meaningless, there can't be a God. Mm -hmm. He doesn't. In fact, he's tethered, as Wilson would say, or he's anchored, and he's going to end by saying, well, when all is said and done, you get back to God. And if anything's going to have any meaning, it'll have to come from him, because it can't come from this stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's a really good way of looking at it, because uh, Solomon in this realizes if you're looking for meaning anywhere in this earth you won't find it and that's why he goes back to God and says this is going to have to be the source of value it's going to mm -hmm. have to be the source of truth it's going to have to be your source of meaning yes so let's let's talk about the existentialist then for a minute uh, before we get to specific texts that we're going to point out here because I think this is really an intriguing idea um, and I, I think it really does help us 2,000 years or 2,800 years later, having gone through a philosophical movement of existentialism, understand this book in a whole new way. We are the children of existentialism. We live it and breathe it. And the interesting thing is we're asking the same question that this book is asking. First, can I talk about vanity of vanities? So Havel is the Hebrew word, and it's translated a lot of different ways, and you'll understand why, because it basically means a vapor or a mist. That's its literal meaning. So something that is here today, gone tomorrow. Something mm -hmm. that's kind of insubstantial, like fog, if you right. will. But then, of course, its metaphorical meaning, its deeper meaning, comes from that, and that is anything that doesn't last. Mm -hmm. You know, our lives, you know, our, our bodies are going to die. And so you get a sense of we're not a mist, if you will, but we are, uh, we don't last forever. We, yeah, we are a mist, biblically speaking. Yeah, exactly. But my point is, it's a metaphorical way of using that word. So we translate it vanity, not vanity as in pride. Mm -hmm. Vanity as in doing something in vain. Right. Try your hardest, it won't make a difference. Uh, meaningless is another translation you'll see. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Mm -hmm. That's another way of saying, at the end of the day, none of this really means anything. Right. It's impermanent. It's insubstantial. So there are a lot of ways to translate this word, but I wanted you to get the idea that when it says vanity of vanities, 
It's like Song of Songs. In Hebrew, that's superlative. It says right. the most meaningless thing ever. Mm-hmm. So, people are born, I think, with the big questions in mind. And that is, who am I? How did I get here? And what in the world does this all mean? And I think the existentialists, when you get to the... I'm going to start in the 20th century and the great pessimism of the 20th century. I mean, you can go back to the Enlightenment. But in the 20th century, we entered the 20th century in a boom. Like, wow, we got the Industrial Revolution. Life has never been better physically. You know, everybody's got washing machines and automobiles are quick to come and all Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And temporal life is really good. And then you have World War I and you have World War II and then you have uh, the potential of nuclear annihilation in the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And there was a... Humanity went into a deep, dark depression. Like, oh my gosh, we thought we had this whole thing figured out. And it turns out that we don't. And so you see the rise of a school of thinking. And I want to call this uh, a wisdom literature. Because they're asking the same question everybody's done. is How do I make sense of what is going on? I thought that I was going to find meaning in pleasure and consumable things and medicine and television sets and entertainment, all of those things, which by the way is what Solomon walks through and and rejects all of those. And all of a sudden they realize, you know what, none of those things provide meaning. And so the existentialists are basically trying to say that you you don't get born with meaning. There is no ultimate meaning. They reject God, of course, unlike Solomon. And they say, well, without God here, you're going to have to make your own meaning. I'm mm-hmm. really simplifying this. But basically, they're saying, hey, every man for himself, you guys find some meaning. Right. Albert Camus is probably one of my favorites, and he wrote this book, The Myth of Sisyphus. And the myth of Sisyphus has often been compared to Ecclesiastes because Camus says there's no God, unlike Solomon. But, he, but like Solomon, he looks at all the things in life and he realizes... This is meaningless. You can push that boulder up the hill, but you're never going to get there. You're never going to achieve anything. You're never going to do anything that lasts or that is permanent. And so, you know what? Life is basically absurd. That's the word that Camus liked. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kohaleth here, Solomon likes meaningless, mist, havel. Mm-hmm. Camus liked the word absurd. And he came to the end and he said, how are you going to deal with the absurdity? And the only thing he could come up with is you just have to embrace the fact that life has no meaning. Mm-hmm. It's extremely pessimistic when yeah. looking at the world. But here's what I want to say is I think there are people trying to answer the same question. And they're writing some wisdom literature. It just isn't very good because it doesn't come out with any kind of an answer at the end that anyone can really live with. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, it is, I think that's a great framework for understanding this book because it's the way that we typically think about meaning. So this is, again, we're not saying that Ecclesiastes is an existentialist book. Right. Um, but instead, existentialism is a lens that we would use to get at the same problem that Ecclesiastes is getting at. Right. And I, I think the parallel is really, really helpful to think through um, meaning. So the like you said, existentialism's approach is to find meaning in a meaningless world. So Camus, for example, in The Myth of Sisyphus, the major philosophical problem is 
suicide. Should right. we all commit suicide? That's how the that's how it opens. Is life even worth living? Right. And the problem is we are trying we are people who have been designed to order things, but we live in an unorderable world. And that is chaos. Right. Right. And that and that is what he calls the absurd. So living in the absurd is the reality that reality is not orderable, but we have an innate design towards order. Of course, you wouldn't use the word design, but we have an impulse towards order. Well, and that's the interesting thing is unlike Ecclesiastes, and I'll use Wilson here, Ecclesiastes is tethered. Solomon never makes the turn and says there is no God. And so not only is there no apparent meaning, Mm -hmm. there can be no apparent meaning in the world. Ecclesiastes is going to give a different answer. But so it's not existential. What I'm saying is the existentialists are trying to answer the same question. Yes, they're confronted with the same well. problem. You know, and, so Sartre, for example, has the probably the best short summary of of existentialism, which is existence precedes essence. So things exist, and then we decide what they're for. Right. We don't have a design that has had thought or mind as a part of it that determines how things are used. And that's true about humanity as well. So we find ourselves existing, therefore we make meaning of our circumstances. That's existentialism. So Heidegger, Sartre, Camus, all of these guys are arguing these same premises. The difference, I think, in Ecclesiastes is this is not about meaning-making. There is assigned meaning, but it is difficult to see. So uh, in in a... to put it in a summary way, I would apply the conversation we've been having. Um, you know, in existentialism, the other thing I'll add is existentialism is being unto death. This is this is Heidegger in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So we are living our lives in view of death at all times. Right. There is that sense in Ecclesiastes that death right. comes for everyone. Um, you can't avoid it. You are living your whole life before the face of death. But in... Chapter 3, verse 13, there's a nice way of reappropriating this to where if death haunts the future, Solomon comes back and says, but whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. That is a determinative stake in the ground where Solomon is saying, yes, there is vanity of vanities, but there also is a transcendent. So there is a transcendent God, there's transcendent meaning, and there is transcendent order in the universe. So we're not meaning-making, we're meaning-receiving. And this is a subtle difference, but it makes a huge difference in the way you interpret Ecclesiastes. Well, and in our lives, because we are the children of existentialism, and here's some things that, let's bring it down to where the rubber meets the road. When you hear people saying, there's no, there are a lot of ways to look at the world and there's no one truth. I look at the world through the lens of race. I look at the world through the lens of oppression. I have my truth, you have your truth. I'll tell you what's true for me. One of the reasons Christians really uh, wrestle with that is because that's exis- that, is, that is the end of existentialism. You make whatever meaning you want. Don't let anybody impose any truth on you. That no one, There is no truth. It's just mm-hmm. everybody making meaning however they want however they want to look at it. Christians, as you said, we're not meaning makers, we're meaning receivers. We come into this saying, no, we were made for a purpose. Right. Meaning is built into us. 
Whether or not we can discover it, whether or not we are obedient to God is another thing, but that we, uh, we do not agree with that. And so when you confront those kinds of statements, they're really going to bother you. And the reason they bother you is, at a very, very fundamental level, that's not how you think about life at all. That's not our answer to the meaning of life. So I think with that framework in place, you, these are the discussions that have been had since then, but they all reflect on the same issue that Ecclesiastes is really dealing with. So let's, using that as a lens, let's let's jump into the specific text, because there are a lot of really famous and well-known texts, some of them in context, some of them not in context. But I think now that we go, now if we go through a few of these, they'll make a lot more sense. I agree. And so we started in chapter one with the idea of... Uh, there's no apparent meaning in the world in and of itself. In other words, if you just look at the things around here, they're all transient, vain, meaningless, insubstantial. And so he begins this exploration. So he talks at the tail end of chapter 1. He says, well, I was a really wise person, and wisdom is good for a lot of things, but at the end of the day, it alone can't give you meaning. Then he goes into self-indulgence, pleasure. In chapter 2, he said, I gave myself everything I wanted. And, you know, pleasure is a good thing, but you know what? At the end of the day, it too is meaningless. It didn't give me ultimate fulfillment. Uh, the vanity of work in chapter 2 is like, I decided to build great buildings and achieve great things, but that also didn't do it, et cetera, et cetera. You see these explorations. You know, the one that one of my favorite verses in, is at the end of chapter 1, and he basically is saying, I have acquired great wisdom, another reason to think this is Solomon, by the way, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 1, verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and madness and folly, but I perceive that at the end, this also is a chasing after the wind, mm -hmm. a meaningless phrase, right? And here's the passage. He said, you know, because in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so what he's saying is, and it's later going to echo, like Proverbs does, that being wise is something you really want. But what Solomon is going to say is it alone isn't the meaning of life. Because sometimes the wiser you get, the greater sorrow that you carry with you. And I have found that to be true in life. It doesn't mean wisdom is bad. It simply means that it is not sufficient to give meaning to your mm -hmm. life. So I love that little section. What about you? Well, I think at the end of chapter 2 is where Wilson is really coming from. So this is in 224. There is all, there is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For, apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Um, for to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. So th this is that same refrain, okay? You've got all these ways of trying to find meaning, but in the end, it is God who establishes meaning. Chapter 3 might be the most famous mm -hmm. uh, passage in the book. This is a time for everything. Everything has a season and uh, a time for every matter under heaven. I, th this is one that's probably most of the time out of context because right. we use this phrase to mean, oh, there's a time for everything, meaning this either is or isn't the time for whatever that <laughs> right. activity is. But if yeah. you look through this list, there are things on here that most of us would think there's never a time for. Right. A time to kill, 
a time to break down, a time to cast away stones, a time for war. You know, this is a realist picture of the world. This is the world as it is. I don't take this as prescriptive as much as descriptive. There is a time for everything under Mm -hmm. the sun. The world has seen it all, um, is kind of what this is saying. Then in chapter 4, verse 9, is another really famous passage. This one is read at weddings all the time. Two are better than one. They have good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone. When he falls, he has not another to lift him up. Threefold cord is at the end of this passage. is not easily broken. This is another just great practical wisdom uh-huh. passage. I think in the flow of the argument of Ecclesiastes, it's probably a little bit different. But you, this is one of those passages you can pretty much just read like Proverbs. This is right. just good life there are, advice. And there are just some great Proverbs in here. Can I make an observation on the whole time for everything? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, there is a quiet determinism running underneath Ecclesiastes. Oh, yeah. It's not uh, Sartre and Camus, like, who knows who made this thing? It's just chaos here. And there is no meaning at right. all. In Ecclesiastes, subtly underneath, you get the idea that I can't figure out the way this works. It doesn't work the way I always want it to work. But somebody's in charge of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like from the hand of God has given you the ability to enjoy. Right. So there's a quiet determinism. But here's the interesting thing. It's not karmic. And mm-hmm. here's what I mean by that. We, in our popular culture, we're grasping at straws. There's no meaning. But I do know this because the commercials tell me so. If you do a good deed for somebody, by the end of the commercial, it's come all the way around to somebody doing a good deed for you. Yes. That's the circle of life, and that's called karma. This is actually the kind of worldview that Ecclesiastes is exactly against. It just refutes that. Yes. It basically says, are you kidding? You're a dreamer. You can do everything right, and then you die, and you gained all this money, and some fool spends your money. Right. Now, why do we like that? Because we're children, our secular cultures, the children of the existentialists. Is like, I can't live life like right. that. I've got to make up some kind of meaning, and maybe karma is it. Maybe if I pay for the guy behind me in the McDonald's drive through then the circle of life or the wisdom of the universe will do me a good deed later on. Mm-hmm. Ecclesiastes has none of that. It says, right. what are you dreaming? Take a look at life. Right. Karma doesn't work. Yeah, there's the passage in here. I'm trying to think of where this is. I think it's in... uh, Oh, yeah, it's in the beginning of chapter 6. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun that lies heavy upon mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing in all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them. A stranger enjoys it. This is vanity. Yeah, that's true. That's right. That's the way the world works. Um, and it doesn't mean that God doesn't give rewards. It doesn't mean that good things don't right. happen. But it is it is definitely a critique of the kind of life you're talking about, this kind of karma-driven, what goes around comes around. The world just isn't quite on that same... And as I say, that was never more than wishful thinking to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling so that you don't have to face the big, bad, ugly, cold world of the existentialist. Right. Because without God, you just got an ugly, cold world out there. Right. And people come up with the craziest ideas to try to comfort themselves. Yeah, back to the beginning. The world of Proverbs, you might think, is a karma kind of world, but that's really not what the book of Proverbs is about. The book of Proverbs only exists in the kingdom of God. Right. Outside of that, 
you have the world of Ecclesiastes. That's a great way of talking about that. So uh, another passage I wanted to point to is in chapter 7, verse 2. And this is one that actually Lance Ward brought to our attention, my attention especially, um, in terms of the way to think through grief. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. This is wisdom in the way that we think about life, death, mourning, Mm -hmm. that actually mourning centers us on what is most important in a way that triumph hardly ever does. Joy distracts us oftentimes Mm -hmm. from the realities of the world, whereas going to a funeral really reminds you of the deep things that you must believe or that you don't believe. I mean, a lot of people in seasons of grief turn back to God because they realize, oh, this is the teeth of what life is like. And so we actually should think about grief and mourning, not as a happy time by any means, but as a centering and sobering time. So I've heard Lance preach this passage at a lot of funerals Mm -hmm. because that's what you're doing at a funeral is you're reminding yourself of the ultimate reality, death, life, resurrection, etc. Chapter 9, I think maybe my favorite little vignette in the book is in chapter 9, verse 13. And this is definitely part of the futility um, of the book. I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, but no one remembered that poor man. I say wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. I just think that's a great little vignette in in the book. If you're expecting gratitude, don't hold your breath. Yeah, nobody remembered him, but he did save the city. And so Solomon says, by wisdom that city was delivered, but no one attributed it to the man who deserved it. Right, yeah. Everybody remembers the siege works, but nobody remembers what actually saved the day. Right. Okay. Well, take us to the end of the book, because it does end on a kind of surprising note. Given what we've talked about so far, we, we do have a little bit more conclusion than you would think that there would be at the end of this book. Yeah, this is uh, kind of what we've been talking about, but here's where you see him get to it. So he goes through all of this exploration, and in chapter 12, verse 8, he literally echoes the words of chapter 1, verse 2. And uh, he says this in verse 8, Vanity of vanities. Ultimately meaningless, says the preacher. All is vanity. Everything is meaningless. And then a few verses later, he says this. These are the last two verses of the book. The end of the matter. Everything has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so what's he saying here? To me, he's saying, all right, I've been on this big exploration, and I told you that none of the things that I explored, wisdom, power, fame, pleasure, ultimately have meaning. They're ultimately all meaningless. And so what what is my conclusion? Instead of, like the existentialist, well, every man for himself, make your own meaning and try to get through the cold night as best you can, Mm -hmm. all alone. Here he says, there is a God. So pay attention to him because that's the only place meaning is going to come from. Mm-hmm. And do what he says because he will bring every deed into judgment. So be faithful to God, be obedient to God, and this is the way to find meaning even in meaningless things. Right. 
I think that's a great final word because I think that is the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.